Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, everyone. This is uh, Stephen Robb from 36 from the Vault. We recorded uh, this episode on the night of April 6th. And when we were done recording, we're came down that our friend Rick, also known as Thoughts on the Dead, had passed away. Uh, So we weren't able to talk about that in our actual episode, but we wanted to record something at the front, uh, just paying tribute to Rick. Uh, Rob, do you remember how you found out about his blog? Yeah, well, appropriately enough, it was a post he wrote making fun of my review for Pitchfork (laughs) of the Fare Thee Well shows. But it was so funny that I didn't take it personally uh, and, you know, started digging back into his blog and, uh, you know, just seeing his whole unique way of writing about the dead and really fell in love with it and followed it for, for many years after that as well. Very, very sad about this news. Yeah, you know, it was great to see all the people talking about Thoughts on the Dead after, you know, this really sad news came down. I mean, obviously, it's a terrible occasion for people to be paying tribute to him, but it does show what a presence he was in this community. I mean, so many people loved his blog and felt touched by it. And his his blog, I mean, it's so dense. Like, if you haven't read his posts, you have to go on, because he really created a world uh, of his own. I mean, would it be fair to call what he did, like, Grateful Dead fan fiction? I mean, there's like an element of that. Uh, but it goes way beyond that. I mean, it was just hilarious and, and really insightful. And he also had a way of sneaking up like sentiment in there as well. Like he could really make you laugh and then all of a sudden hit you with like something really insightful and, and deep. The thing that Rick nailed, maybe more than any other writer on The Grateful Dead that I've ever seen, is that you could treat them as one of the greatest bands of all time and also one of the most ridiculous bands of all time. <laughs> right. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. In fact, the fact that they were so ridiculous is part of what makes them 
one of the greatest bands of all time. Uh, and he just took that to every extreme possible and was so funny and so insightful at the same time and such a great writer about other bands too. I mean, I loved when he would get into like Queen at Live Aid. His 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 post on that is one of my favorites or, you know, watching a Billy Joel concert video <laughs> and just in, in real time ripping on it. Such a funny guy, such a unique presence. Definitely an influence on 36 from the Vaults because I think we share his attitude that we love the dead, but we also love to make fun of the dead. And that's part of the whole shtick here. And I mean, we, we really wanted to have him on the show. We had talked about plans about doing one very soon, but unfortunately he got sick very fast. And Yeah. You know, I'm glad you said that thing about him being an influence on us because I was going to say the same thing. I think that's absolutely true that when you read his blog, he clearly loved the dead. He clearly knew a lot about the dead, but he could also appreciate the absurd aspects of the band. And in fact, the ability to laugh at them fed the fandom. You know, it, it actually increased your your affection for this band, because I think we've talked about this on this show that like the Grateful Dead is among, I think, the handful of artists out there that you can um, you can appreciate when they fail. You know, when they fail, it's more interesting and entertaining than most bands when they succeed, you know? Uh, and that's the great thing about them. And, you know, I got to know Rick a little bit just from DMing. We got, you know, we would talk on a fairly regular occasion, occasion you know, it is mostly, like you said, it was talking about other bands. It wasn't really talking about the dead uh, because like me, he had an affection for big, dumb rock bands of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And uh, I think the last conversation I had with him was was two months ago. We were talking about Kiss albums and he, and he was <laughs> talking about how terrible Animal Eyes was. Uh, so that was always fun. And uh, yeah, I, you know, I miss him already. <laughs> you know, I, I'm really sad that we couldn't get him on the show. He wanted to come on and talk about Dick's Picks 29 uh, because one of those shows is in Florida and he lived in Florida. Uh, I know he had affection for the Hollywood Sportatorium, uh, just like we do, uh, which the dead played for Dick's Picks 3. Uh, but, uh, you know, he always would joke about how everyone else had a podcast about the Grateful Dead except him. <laughs> and I think, uh, I'm sure he resented that on some level. And, you know, he probably deserved to have a podcast more than, than anybody. But, you know, we weren't able to get him on the show, but I think his spirit will be on the show. And I think when Dick's Picks 29 comes around, we'll have to do something special uh, in his honor uh, for that. Rick, uh, again, really sad, but we're, we're glad to have known you. And uh, fare thee well. Yeah, our condolences to his family, and uh, it was it was great to know him. You know, as much as we could through the online Grateful Dead community. And uh, in tribute to him, we'll talk about all sorts of crazy, digressive, stupid shit <laughs> in this episode. So, uh, yeah, this one goes out to you, Rick. So we're venturing into 1985 today. This is the first time that we've spent some time in this year. And it made me just think about the 80s and, and Ronald Reagan and how that was such a conservative era. And I'm interested in this period of the dead because it seems like the least Grateful Dead period imaginable. It also made me think about that video I sent you of, of Tucker Carlson right. <laughs> on that podcast. You know you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's talking about uh, his, his own dead experiences. Yeah, Tucker Carlson, conservative commentator for Fox News. He was on this podcast. I think it's called My Favorite Music of All Time or something. And it looks like he's talking to like a 15-year-old kid. Like, I don't... <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't understand this podcast and like how this kid got Tucker Carlson on his show. Right. Or like why he would have wanted Tucker Carlson. The on conservatives his show. love those like uh, teenage conservatives, right? They I guess like, prop them up at all their uh, conventions, and then they end up becoming like radical leftists four years later. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know the kid's politics. He honestly, I mean, he might not, he might be older than fifteen, but he looks like Justin Bieber did like fifteen years ago. <laughs> like very yeah. young looking kid. And yeah, Tucker Carlson is this deadhead. And you know, we've heard about other conservatives being deadheads. Famously, Ann Coulter is a deadhead. But I was struck by this video because, and I hate to say this, but like if I didn't know anything else about Tucker Carlson, I would think he was like pretty likable in this video. He just seems like a middle-aged guy who's into the yeah. dead and like he defends Donna and he's like really into drum circles. And it's like the most new age Tucker Carlson performance I've ever seen. Right. It, it, it's really weird. It's creepy to be for him to be relatable, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You're like, what? Like this guy? Like if you just met him in a parking lot, you didn't know anything else about him, you'd think, oh, this guy's pretty cool. It also made me wonder, what's the likelihood that Tucker Carlson has like listened to this show? Do you think mm -hmm. he's ever dropped into Thirty Six from the Vault at some point? Uh, I, I feel like he might have been one of those, and we're going to hear from another one soon, who listened to like two episodes and then decided we didn't really like the dead. We uh, we don't know what we're talking about because we weren't there, man. And he's, he's he was probably listening with that, you know, weird expression on his face that always gets tweeted to, to you, like talking about how Half Step was a, a lackluster dead song and throwing right. his headphones across the room. <laughs> right. Possibly. I don't know, though. Again, just based purely on this video, he's given off like pretty kind vibes okay, on this okay. podcast. And I'm thinking like maybe he wouldn't have objected to our first episode where, you know, I didn't say nice things about Mississippi Half Step. You uh, knocked Weather Report Sweet. It's just odd to me. I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised by now that there's so many right wingers who are into the dead. I think this show that we're going to be talking about today in a way explains that just because the dead had this renaissance in the 80s that really seemed to appeal to like prep school kids and college yeah. students trust fund kids yeah right it, it seemed like that was a big part of the constituency constituency it's not something necessarily that it's like not the cool part of the dead but it is like a part of their tent and they have a big tent that's one of the great things about them every you got the hell's angels you've got like the spinners you got tucker carlson you got bill <laughs> walton right yeah, it's a little it's a little bit of something for everybody. I guess it's admirable in its way. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's, it almost seems like a lot of people took the wrong lesson away from the dead and the scene around the dead. And obviously there's a lot of sort of libertarianism that goes back to the dead's roots, right? Uh, and, you know, Barlow was a big libertarian, techy libertarian type guy. And I don't know, it just like some people got this sort of like anti-government, uh, you know, bug from the dead scene and maybe took it into a classically conservative sense, I guess, of uh, limited government and wanting, you know, the man to let them be free to do their drugs and listen to their hippie music. But conservatism in the 80s and conservatism today are very different beasts, even if Tucker Carlson can straddle both worlds. <laughs> yeah, I, I just picture Tucker Carlson in the 80s as being like Alex P. Keaton from mm -hmm. Family Ties. Exactly, which, yeah. Which we will be referencing later on in this episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's exactly what he is. But is there a Family Ties where Alex Keaton goes to a, a dead show? Oh, which man. 
time. That will be the new all, all in the family uh, hunt is to find Michael J. Fox talking about uh, in the dark. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Alex, Alex and Mallory and I forget Tina Yother's name on that show. Is it Jennifer? Mm, she's she's like the little blonde daughter. They all go to a dead show and Alex gets some like secondhand buzz from the parking lot scene and he like he passes out and then Mallory ends up like hooking up with Steve Parrish. <laughs> you know, this is a good spec script if it doesn't exist. We should write this. Cuz I mean the whole conceit of family ties is that the parents were old hippies, right? And you right. young conservative and they were like horrified by their own son's political leanings. So exactly. This, this, if this wasn't a family ties episode, then it like you know, Mandela effect should be one uh, that we should we should just conjure up in people's minds. Yeah, definitely. You know, some fan fiction, like some Family Ties slash Grateful Dead fan fiction, I think would be pretty cool. <laughs> and you know, it's I'm so glad that they have a Dick's Picks from 1985. Even though this show, and we'll get into this, it's kind of a weird choice, even for 1985. And this isn't my favorite year by any stretch of the imagination for the Grateful Dead, but it is fun for me, and I think for you too, to like visit this year in Grateful Dead history, just because it does seem like such a strange time for the Grateful Dead. I can't imagine like a less relevant time for the Dead in terms of like greater pop culture. Like if you're looking at like what else was popular that year, this sure. seems like the widest gap between the mm-hmm. Dead and like the rest of the like pop cultural landscape. Right. And yet, still a very popular time for them. I mean, they were all—they were still a popular touring act. But no, you're right. I mean, it's you know, Dick's Picks being a travelogue through the Dead's history, and the Dead, of course, as we've said many times, being a very different band at different stages in their life. You got to have some representation of the mid '80s, and you know, honestly, I think this set does a really good job of showing both the good and the bad of this era of the Dead. So we got a lot to talk about. This is going to be a full episode. Yeah, I think it's going to be great. And I, in, in a way, I think if Tucker Carlson hasn't listened to us yet this might be the first time all right that he's yeah, checking. if you know tucker send him this link because he's excited about us doing 85 dead maybe he was at this show richmond virginia possible. you know it's possible he was at this show tucker if you're listening we're sending some kind vibes to you we're, we're, we're trying to infiltrate fox news from the inside <laughs> we're changing hearts with kindness he's gonna be on his show after listening to our podcast and wearing the tie-dyed shirt he's gonna be not going against the immigrants anymore <laughs> we're gonna change his heart change his heart change his mind it starts today this is like a subversive act of <laughs> kindness an intervention an intervention so let's get it started
right, this is 36 from The Vault. I am Steve. I'm Rob. And uh, we're here talking about Dick's Picks 21, which I mentioned takes place mostly at the Richmond Coliseum in Richmond, Virginia on November 1st, 1985. And then there's some filler at the end, four tracks from September 2nd, 1980 at the Community War Memorial in Rochester, New York. Kind of a strange combination of shows. Sure. Yeah. I guess it's because it's both Brent era shows. That's, that's yeah. really the only connection I can see here. It's it's like a weird um, representative of how compressed in time the 80s are for the dead, where we've talked about this, where every dead biography will spend like, you know, 80% of the time talking about the 60s and 70s, and then like three pages on the 80s, and then 10% on the 90s and Jerry dying. Like, I'm working my way through Kreutzmann's autobiography right now, and it is literally like less than a chapter of like, the 80s happened, and then moving on, Jerry had a, had a coma, and touch of gray. So I it's funny to me that even, you know, the official David Lemieux choices are kind of just like, yeah, 1985, 1980, sure, same same thing. We'll throw them on there together. And yet, I think it holds true that you can tell the difference between the 85 material and the 80 material. I, I, yeah. It definitely sounds like two distinct eras to me. And again, we'll get into this in our episode. You know, I think even for 1985, which I actually find is like, there's a constituency out there that are like hardcore 85 heads who will defend 85. You know, I'm curious to hear from those people where they feel like this show ranks in 85, because just from my own admittedly, you know, casual exploration of this year so far, I found shows that I thought were better than this show, maybe more representative of what would like the strengths of this year. So yeah, it's an interesting choice on many levels. I'd be curious to hear the reasoning for this. And we're going to speculate on why this show was picked. There's a couple quirky things about this show, both in the set list. Yeah. And we got a firsthand account of somebody who was at the show too, which I think explains a little bit about why this show had historical relevance for the dead. I'm not sure that makes it a great live album release, but it's definitely, you know, argues for the show being memorable. Yeah, there's some set list things in there that are unique. And yeah, then there's this subtext about what happened at the show that makes it unique, which you wouldn't know necessarily from listening to the show, but we're going to fill in those contextual spaces for you as we dive into Dick's Picks 21. But before we get to that, we have our mailbag segment and uh, yeah. we introduced this. I guess in our second episode of this season, our Dick's Picks 20 episode, we've gotten some good letters so far. I would say like 90 to 95% positive. People being very nice and kind, complimentary. Uh, but we do get some hate mail. And of course, we have to read the hate mail. I have to say that <laughs> as much as we like the compliments, if you are going to be pissy in an email, there's probably a higher chance you're going to end up in our episode. Yeah, the hate um, mail, uh, it's more interesting. It is. Or if you have like a nice email, if you could at least start it out by like saying that we don't do our research, <laughs> or if you say like that we're not really fans of the dead, and then you say something nice after that, just having that intro, I think that's going to catch our eye, make us want to put you in our episode. But yeah, this our first letter comes from Eric. Yeah, should I read this one since it was addressed to me? <laughs> yeah, and should we say where he's from? He's from he's from Illinois, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't want to give him too much identification. Eric uh, from Illinois. There's yeah. like a million Eric's in Illinois. <laughs> but yeah, he he had a lot to say. He started uh, with the, the the sweet spot that 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 Steve was talking about. He says, "Rob, if you and Steve are going to do a podcast about Grateful Dead releases, can you guys get a little more knowledgeable about the subject?" Oh no. 
Uh oh. Yeah, we heard we heard this a lot in the early days. The uh, do you guys even like the Grateful Dead? Why don't you guys do any research? What? Yeah, we're in the shit now. We're in yeah, the shit yeah. now. Okay. Uh, so his supporting evidence. Uh, I think it's your opinion that Mickey Hart is a quote groove killer. Uh, WTF? Does that mean it's only understandable that the band would sound different in '76 through '89 than they did in 1973? Uh-huh. Sure. The Grateful Dead could have only one drummer from the post hiatus, but they would not still have sounded not have still sounded the same. Which sure. I, I don't think we disagree with. Uh, you know, you're doing thought experiments. Yeah. Like, with... what if uh, you had Solo Billy in summer '77 while Mickey was laid up with his car accident injuries? It's just, it's just, it's just speculation. It's science. I have all right he goes on never mind the fact that you are two guys who give fish any quarter parentheses i fucking hate that band oh man and constantly compare the two bands drives me nuts let alone tries to give a critical view of the grateful dead you guys come off sounding like a couple of clueless millennials <laughs> even though you were on the tail end of gen x so this is this is curious uh because i don't think we mention too often how old we are on this show so you've got to be a pretty deep 36 from the vault head to, uh, i was gonna say on, uh, i mean he's right we're on the tail end of Gen X, almost exactly, right? He's uh, weirdly specific about our birth dates. I'm glad he didn't drop like a reference to our addresses in there. <laughs> then that would have been a little suspicious. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but okay, all right. Clueless millennials. Right. Um, uh, fish fans. Yeah. Fish fans, he hates the band. Okay, but, the, you know, not too bad yet. It, right, right. You know, it's like the early rounds. He gets a couple shots in. But we're still standing. It's not too bad yet. <laughs> yeah, all right. Here we go. Come on. Trashing Garcia's slide playing is just downright wrong and shows you have no taste. Not every slide player has to use the blues sound like Dwayne Allman or Derek Trucks. Now, that's directed at you, Rob. Right. Specifically. But it's funny because, you know, I've made it very clear that I don't particularly care for Dwayne Allman or Derek Trucks either. <laughs> so, uh, if, you know, if Jerry did sound more like that, I still wouldn't like it, I think. Uh, I just want to say I'm, a, I'm on Eric's side with this. Right. Okay? Uh, yeah. Uh, I accept I, that. I agree, Eric. Rob has no taste in this regard. <laughs> so I'm, I'm with you. Everybody's got their blind spots. It's it's okay. Uh, he says, what is with all this trashing of Chuck Berry songs as well? It Uh-oh. really annoys me, the segment where you guys set this... Oh, sorry. This is a separate thought. Uh, just to address the Chuck Berry thing. I think, you know, we're, we're just giving the dead a hard time for being fixated on on Mr. Barry and leaning on it every show, sometimes two or three times. <laughs> yeah, this is this is our shtick, man. Yeah. This is our shtick. And also, come on, Triple Berry, can we just agree that that's nobody wants it's, that? We're just speaking the truth here, okay? It's too much, it's fair, t- too much fruit. It's tough love. Exactly. Uh, it really annoys me, the segment where you guys set the scene for each release by talking about music and movies that were happening. I just Ooh. have to fast forward. It's bad enough you guys crack horrible jokes and laugh at each other. These jokes are worse than dad jokes. All right, now, now, you, now you've gone too far, Eric. <laughs> now you've crossed the line. Rob and I are hilarious. Our jokes yeah. are fresh. They're hip. The young people love them. Kids come up to me all the time and tell me <laughs> that I'm hilarious. I was with you on the slide thing, man. We were on the same side, but that's a low blow. I I, I can't I, I can't really stand for that. Yeah, I mean everybody knows that the dead are an entirely serious topic, and no humor should ever enter the discussion when oh, the man. subject of the Grateful Dead comes up. It was a very somber 
and joyless experience uh, that we should not poke fun at at all. <laughs> so Eric disagrees, though. By the way, the horn player is a 1973 dead Martin Fierro, saxophone player in Legion of Mary, comma, zero, etc. But then again, how would anyone who likes fish know this? I only hope that the fast forward function doesn't get disabled, which uh... I like. It's a hopeful ending because it says that he's still going to listen to us and is probably listening to us read his email right now and fuming. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you can fast forward. You can listen to us at two times speed. Do whatever do whatever you got to do if uh, you just can't wait to get to our opinions that you hate <laughs> about <laughs> the show after we talk about TV movies from 1976. I just have to put out a request out there. If you know Eric, could you stop by his house and check in on him? Because apparently a large piece of furniture has fallen on Eric and uh, he, he's trapped and he's listening to our show against his will. And apparently he's listening to it on a loop because I think he's like listened up into our like most recent episode. Yeah, sounds like it. The show that he hates though, that he's forced to listen to. So if someone could get Eric from underneath that large piece of furniture and rescue him, I think that would be great. I appreciate Eric's voicing these opinions. I'm sure there's people out there that agree with him. And yet they are addicted to not liking our show and they can't help themselves. So we appreciate those people too. Yeah. I mean, hate listeners count the same as uh, the people who like us. So, uh, you know, keep keep downloading and commenting. Like, no, don't com- maybe don't comment. Don't comment and rate us, but keep listening because, uh, yeah, we got we got ads to sell. So we have, we have one more letter here. We have to clear the palette a little bit from, from the previous <laughs> yeah. uh, letter. This is uh, from a listener named Alex. It says, Dear Stephen and Rob, thank you for the podcast. It has been a wonderful trip learning about the dead and listening to all the DPs. As a kid of the 80s, like... Like y'all, my dead journey really started in reverse chronological order with my first albums being Without a Net, Touch of Grey, Shakedown Street. So getting a deep dive into advanced level early 70s dead has been a blast. Here's my hot take. You both are vastly underrating Road Jimmy with three exclamation points. This song clicked for me early in the pandemic as an ode to perseverance, kind of like Bob Marley's version of Keep On Moving. The slightly reggae feel is not a bad thing. And what Bill does on the latest version from OKC is incredible. He's talking about the version from Dick's Picks uh, 19. I know it's not the jam vehicle that are some of our favorite songs, but it has all the feels. So as an avid listener and big fan of the pod, I urge you all to give it more of a shot. Looks like we won't have a chance to discuss again until Dick's Picks 27, so maybe that's plenty of time for extra research. Thanks again for your work. Can't wait to enjoy the rest of your third tour. Uh, That is from Alex. Alex, thanks for writing in. Again, this person, I think, is complaining about you, Rob. (laughs) Because... (laughs) Theme here? Yeah. Well, first of all, this is our second Road Jimmy question. We had a Road Jimmy question last week. I love this. Yeah. I love that mailbag has become Road Jimmy talk of all Yeah. This is Road Jimmy Corner. On, on 36 from the vault. I believe I've defended Road Jimmy every time it's come up. And I even praised Bill's drumming on the Dick's Picks 19 version that uh, Alex is referencing. I liked what he was doing. I believe you thought it was a little busy. But I've defended 70s Road Jimmy. I've defended 80s Road Jimmy. I'm a Road Jimmy fan. So I don't know. Is this about you, Rob? I don't think you've what? been too hard on Road Jimmy. Yeah, no, it's it's mostly just kind of like a it's a it's a meh song for me. It's kind of neither here nor there. But the thing I love about this, and we've talked about this before, that every dead song has its supporter, right, or its supporter group that thinks that this dead song is the greatest dead song or is very special to them. And I don't know. I love hearing stuff like this and hearing what people find, and even the songs that I feel like could be filler in a show. 
Uh, and I am willing to be convinced. That's going to be a theme of this episode, that I am trying to keep an open mind for the parts of the Grateful Dead that I don't naturally choose for myself and try and see see the good and even the eras and the songs that are, uh, at first, somewhat unappealing to me. So it's a good segue into the discussion of a very divisive Dick's Picks. Yeah, I mean, so yes, we're, we're in 1985 for most of the time, and then we have a a brief detour into 80 at the end of the album. And I, I touched on this a little bit earlier. You know, one thing I'm a little frustrated by with these 80s dicks picks that we've had so far, which we haven't had many. I'm trying to remember the last one we had. Was it was it Dick's Picks 13, the 81 show? Was that the yeah. last time we were in the 80s? No, we had, we had a 90s show. We had Dick's Picks 17. Right. Uh, but last time with Brent, well, yeah, it's, it's quite a ways ago. All of these '80s and '90s shows still no feels like a stranger, <laughs> which yeah. I and I realize that it's coming up. I think it's coming up this this tour on a future Dick's picks. But but still, to go to the '80s and '90s and you don't get it feels like a stranger. There's no Shakedown Street in this show. I think we've had one Shakedown Street so far back in Dick's Picks Five. Mm-hmm. We don't get an Althea in this show, right? Um. I feel like you need one of those for an 80s show, for me. Like, throw me a bone here. Yeah, there's a real tension, I think, between a lot of these 80s shows being chosen because they have some of the big 70s uh, hits on them, I guess. Uh, hits in a dead, deadhead sense of like the big jam songs that people look for from a dead show. Whereas I think a lot of the you know best parts of the 80s or the best shows from 80s dead are you know where they're concentrating more on songs that were written in the 80s or at the tail end of the 70s that suit their sound a lot better uh where you don't have to like hear sort of you know songs that really had their heyday in the early 70s or in 77 being sort of reconfigured for the brent era dead uh and it which sounds really weird to a dead fan like me who mostly listens to the 60s and 70s uh versus just sort of leaning into like what was unique and special uh about the brent era uh like for instance we're on our third brent show here and we still haven't had a brent's composition on any of these shows like they don't give brent any of his songs on these dicks picks which i think is kind of weird because you know certainly by the end of the 80s there was a brent song at least every show if not one in each set uh as he sort of you know, grew in stature within the band. So it's it's a weird sort of thing where it's like, we're going to give you a Brent show, but we're going to give you a Brent show where they play older material for the most part. Yeah, there's a lot of covers in this show too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I will say that one thing I like about the 80s dead, and this is also true of the 90s, is that they were playing more sort of oddball songs, like left field covers that they maybe only played a handful of times, mm-hmm. um, which we're going to see on future Dick's Picks gets really out there when they're covering like Bob O'Reilly, for instance, which is maybe <laughs> not ad- maybe that wasn't like an advisable thing for them to do. <laughs> yeah. But um, there's instances in this show where they're playing some wacky and even like borderline corny covers that I found myself appreciating just for the perversity of them doing it. And apologies in advance to Eric out there. But, you know, I preferred hearing some of those corny covers to like hearing like Chuck Berry again. Yeah. And nothing against Chuck Berry necessarily, but it's, you know, you hear, you know, Johnny Be Good at the end of every show, which we've had, I think, didn't Johnny Be Good end 19 and 20? Yeah. You know, that's enough of the Johnny Be Good. I kind of want to (laughs) hear some of the, some of the wackiness that we, we end up with this show. 
Um, right. And that was a big part of my enjoyment of this particular record was leaning into some of the 80s goofiness that shows up on mm-hmm. this album. Yeah, absolutely. I went on a journey with this particular <laughs> Dick's Picks, and we'll talk about it, where I pretty much was entirely repulsed by the first listen to it. Uh, I, I won't lie. I was texting with Steve that this was going to be a dangerous episode because it might be the most negative I ever go on a Dick's Picks. But I think a lot of that was just jumping from... You know, pretty excellent 73 and 76 editions uh, straight into the depths of the 80s. Uh, And it really grew on me uh, as we researched for this episode. I don't know if it was Stockholm Syndrome or actually, you know, me coming to appreciate what they were doing in this year. But uh, I I started to to figure it out a little more uh, as we dug into it. And I mean, another thing, and this is something we should talk about up top, is the sound of this particular Dick's Picks, I think, is, is not ideal this is a dan healy recording pretty much throughout the 80s a lot of those tapes end up being healy run-in tapes just off the live mix of the show to his credit like his his primary responsibility was making the sound great in the room uh so running a tape on the side he was not mixing it for us listening in march 2001 when this uh volume came out or in you know 2021 uh dan healy was a very active sound guy like he wasn't just like a set the levels and forget it type of guy too so he's doing a lot of weird things with like highlighting individual members in the mix and i don't know it just i don't know how you feel about it but i feel like every time we get to one of these 80s dicks picks it tends to be a Dan Healy recording and it tends to be sort of, I don't know, tinny or just very thin in a way that, you know, obviously the Betty boards are far superior, but even, you know, like the, the Owlsley tapes or the Kid Candelario tapes are just a lot warmer and richer sounding than this era of the dead. Yeah, I mean, I actually felt like this was better than some of the other 80 shows we've, we, we've heard, like uh, Dick's Picks 5. I remember being really tinny. Mm. Uh, and 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 almost kind of lo-fi in parts, and and thirteen too has some issues, but um, that wasn't jumping out to me as much um, as much of as much as just like how the band sounds at mm. this time, and it it was an interesting year for the Dead because eighty five begins with Jerry getting busted in Golden Gate Park. When was that in 85? I think it was like That was early. right off the bat in January. In so January the band 85. did an intervention with him. He agreed to go into rehab. On his way to rehab, he decided to pull over his car in Golden Gate Park and do like every drug he had in his suitcase. And uh, a cop rolled up behind him because the car didn't have the proper registration and yeah, busted him. So he got off pretty light, but it was, you know, one of many temporary wake up calls for Jerry where he decided to clean up his act a little bit. And they proceed to have like a fairly busy year. They play 74 shows. And then, of course, we have Jerry's Coma on the horizon, which which occurs in July of 1986. Uh, so that is you know, about nine months or, show, or so uh, before this show. So definitely Jerry is like not in the best frame of mind uh, in 1985. But again... From just my dabbling in 85 in connection with researching Dick's Picks 21, I found some shows I really liked. In fact, there's one show in particular that I would argue, and this is very us to do here on 36 from the Vault, to argue that another show should have been picked. But uh, I really like the June 30, 85 show, mm-hmm. um, which uh, I found out about because I was on some message boards and people talked about the Shakedown Street. Some people were arguing that that, that, that it was like the best Shakedown Street of all time. From, mm-hmm. from the show, which I don't know if I agree with that, but it's a really great shakedown. And that whole show, I think, has 
an energy to it that the show on Dick Specs 21 to me doesn't have necessarily. And it certainly doesn't have as good of a set list, I think, as yeah. 63085. It's um, a different vibe. Good show, though. Yeah, I listened to it, too, and really liked the second set. And uh, yeah, has a lot of lot of energy. That show from from Meriwether Post Pavilion. Yeah. It definitely has like more of a summer party vibe, I think, than mm. yeah, than, exactly. than, the, than the show. But it just goes to show that, like, even in an era like this, that no one would say is like the dead in their prime. They were still capable of delivering a really solid to even very good show, mm. um, which is what makes exploring every year of the dead so interesting. Yeah, and poking around, I saw that like this this fall tour is pretty well regarded, I guess, as far as '80s tours go. And this show falls pretty early in the fall tour, uh, depending on where you you know define where it started and ended. But it there was a show the night before in South Carolina, a Halloween show, which people really like, and it's got an interesting set list as well. It actually opens with space, which I don't know how many times that happened. That might have been the only one. Uh, but it's got like five minutes of space before they go into the their traditional werewolves of London. Uh, the night after this was really good. I thought uh, I listened to that show today. Uh, it has like an also uh, like again probably on paper the set list looks a little stronger than the show that was released. Uh, it's got a pretty nice Uncle John's band. It's got a really good morning dew that has again just Phil like shaking the rafters <laughs> with some bombs. You know. 80s every year of the 80s has its defenders and i think 85 is more than most and i think a little bit of that was that there were a lot of soundboards that leaked from this year but i think it's even built up over time because more so than the soundboards even there are really good audience recordings from this era and in fact if you haven't already listened out there to dick's picks volume 21 i would even suggest you skip the soundboard and go to the audience recording uh, the most popular one on the archive which is by the od brothers very famous grateful dead tapers the od brothers uh i just think it sounds a lot better in audience than in soundboard for this particular show it just sounds more balanced and you can hear how crazy the crowd was uh whereas which we're going to touch on in a minute it was a pretty wild scene that night and it doesn't really come across in the soundboard at all and you can really see at this time you know this is obviously before the touch of gray era 
where the dead blew up into a stadium act by the end of the 80s but they were really popular already in the mid 80s you know after maybe having kind of a down period a little bit uh like in the early 80s i think again going back to our conversation about tucker carlson you know the the sort of college student like prep school kid audience had really started to infiltrate the scene at this time so you know these shows that we're talking about I mean, this, the Richmond Coliseum, I think it's about 13,500 people. You know, and it was a sold-out venue, and they played two nights there, drawing enough to, like, pack, like, a pretty nice-size arena. Um, this uh, Richmond Coliseum that we're talking about, where they played the 85 show, uh, it opened in 1971, and uh, apparently it uh, was quietly shuttered, was the terminology used that I saw uh, in February of 2019. And uh, it was the home of the uh, Virginia Commonwealth University men's basketball team for many years. Yeah. And uh, the Dead only played there twice. They played there on November 1st, which is the show that we're hearing in Dick's Picks 21. And they played the following night, November 2nd. And was November 2nd the night of the riot? It sounds like it was pretty much a continuous riot for both (laughs) nights. Uh, And... Like a lot of riots was part deadhead fan riot and part police riot. I mean, it sounds like from all the stories, the police in Virginia cracked down really hard on the deadheads rolling into town. And I think this has a lot to do with why this was the only time the dead played in Richmond. There were a lot of just petty arrests throughout the lot and inside the show. More than 13,500 fans showed up to get into this show. And so there were a lot of sort of rushes of the gate and things like that, of fans trying to get in for free, uh, breaking windows, trying to get in. Like it was uh, kind of an ugly scene all around. We talked to... uh, Our friend on Twitter, Mr. Completely, who was at these shows, uh, he was talking about that it was cold, it was wet, it was just kind of an unpleasant atmosphere outside the arena, and that people were just getting busted left and right. So one of those runs where the the scene feels like it's getting a little out of control, which, you know, as you say, like maybe some people don't realize that it had already gotten that big and that unruly in 1985. That's mostly what you think about in sort of the big stadium dead post touch of gray you know hit single it sounds a little bit like the 1995 struggles i had uh in the last tour where there were people gate crashing and uh riots outside the outside the venue well i think it's also worth pointing out that this wasn't exactly unique to the dead that there was a a culture really starting i think i'm sure it existed in the 70s but it seemed like it really started to flower in the 80s of just people getting wasted in parking lots and we didn't bring this up in our previous episode uh, which uh, one of the shows took place at the capitol center but that was the famous setting for park for heavy metal parking lot right. that that documentary which you know has no connection to the dead but it's a similar scene where it's just metalheads partying outside the arena you know before the show so i don't think it was unique to the dead i think a lot of bands attracted this kind of following but you know i think the dead already had a reputation for attracting a like a really fun big party when they came to town and that apparently freaked out the local officials right yeah mr completely mentioned that there were some people trying to dose the cops with spray bottles (laughs) uh, and that there were uh some people within that uh, crew that were trying to dose the police horses with spray bottles which is a pretty uh uh extreme deadhead activity but yeah i mean it's it's one of those things where there were probably uh some idiots on both sides i would say uh that oh man 
we're we're producing a a a negative vibe going into this show, uh, to say the least. That's just like how we're trying to dose Tucker Carlson with this episode, <laughs> right? You know, maybe this is what radicalized him. We saw some hippies trying to dose police horses, right? Exactly. I'm going to become an authoritarian uh, toadstool. Yeah. Oh Jesus. Well, we're shooting like verbal acid through our uh, speakers right now into people's mouths. <laughs> um, so the other venue uh, that the Dead plays on Dick's Picks 21 is Community War Memorial. That's in Rochester, yeah. New York. Which actually came up last episode, yeah. Yeah, another war memorial arena in upstate New York. Just tons of wars being memorialized there. War although, memories. Although this venue is now known as Blue Cross Arena. Sure. So we're now memorializing uh, insurance companies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, get war out of here, bring in insurance companies. Uh, this venue opened in 1955 and it was renovated in the mid-90s. It's home to the Rochester Americans, which is a semi-pro hockey team, and the Rochester Nighthawks, a, l- a lacrosse team. I didn't know there was a lacrosse league. Apparently yeah. it was a big lacrosse. It's a very Northeast thing to have, yeah. Um, cross kids. Tucker Carlson probably played lacrosse. I'm sure he did. Um <laughs> GA capacity at this venue is about 14,000, which again, you know, that seems like a venue that the dead could fill pretty easily in, in on the East Coast. Other notable shows played here, the Rolling Stones played there in 1965. They played for seven minutes before riots took place at their show and they had to stop playing. A lot of riots. Uh, a lot of riots. Zeppelin and The Who both played there in 1971. Would have been a great time to see both of those bands. Did they play together or were those separate shows? Separate okay. shows. Yeah. So it would have been like Who's Next, Who, uh, and like Led Zeppelin Four era Zeppelin. So both, in their, both in their Pretty prime. Yeah. Fish was filmed there uh, in uh, 1997 for the film Bittersweet Motel. Right, by Oscar-nominated director. Todd Phillips. Todd yes. Phillips. Yes. Todd I was Phillips. gonna say Todd Haynes, but that would be a lot different. Yeah. No, that'd be no, not Todd Haynes <laughs> and not Todd Silence. Uh, Todd Phillips. We're gonna be heading back to Community War Memorial, a ways down the road, for Dick's Picks Thirty Four. That was recorded at this venue. That was a nineteen seventy seven show. So looking forward to that. I guess the Dead played there ten times overall, including two shows about a week after this eighty five show. <laughs> get into the shows let's set the scene here by talking about what was happening what else was happening in pop culture in 1985 number one song in america saving all my love for you by whitney houston Mm, yeah one of the one of our slower ones yeah very schmaltzy song yeah is that a is that a diane warren sounds like a diane warren probably something something along those lines other big songs from this period you have part-time lover by stevie wonder Mm -hmm. you have the miami vice theme by jan hammer which is 
A total banger. I love sure. it. That's a, one of the great theme songs of all time. You have Take On Me by AHA. Yeah, a lot of synthesizers. Yes, quintessentially 80s. All of these songs, uh, again, just seem totally antithetical to what you would associate with the Grateful Dead. Yeah, which weirdly, you know, Brent, he's got some crazy keyboard tones in this show, but this is a less synthy era of the dead. Like the MIDI oh, stuff yeah. didn't come in until later. So it's not like, uh, you know, it, there's more synths on the 1980 part than the 1985 part, I think. Uh, yeah, he's he's so. playing a lot of organ in this show, which I think a lot actually of organ, sounds, a lot of roads, yeah. Which I think sounds pretty great, actually. Yeah. I, I like Brent a lot in this show. Later on in November, We Built This City by Starship went to number one for two right. weeks. And it's interesting to compare Starship, which of course came out of the Jefferson Airplane, contemporaries of the Grateful Dead, you know, to contrast them with the dead. The dead who, I, you know, even though they had hit with Touch of Grey, I think it's fair to say that they always stayed the course. They were always themselves. Touch of Grey to me, maybe it's a little cleaner sounding than some of their other, you know, recordings, if you're going to compare them to the 70s or the 60s or whatever, but it still sounds like the Grateful Dead. Yeah, exactly. They didn't really compromise. No, uh, not at all. They just kind of lucked into a hit, whereas We Built This City is classic sellout material right yeah they are the i have to starship that must be the most egregious sellout (laughs) of like the boomer rock generation because they had that song they had the song nothing's gonna stop us now from right yeah yeah you know just just total sellouts with that it's it's amazing that that's gray slick right i mean it's just like such a such a difference from white rabbit that it's uh it's almost hard to Hard to believe. Yeah, Jerry never recorded songs for the Mannequin soundtrack, so, you know. <laughs> it's true. If Touch of Grey sounded like anything, it sounded like the number one album of this time. Yeah. Dire Straits. Touch of yeah. Grey always sounded a little bit closer to Dire Straits to me than The Grateful Dead uh, normally would, but, uh, I mean, I think that's, that's hardly... Uh, giving in to the, the trendy music of the time. Well, and, and of course, the album in particular is, is Brothers in Arms, which is the record that has Money for Nothing, So Far Away, The Walk of Life. And, you know, the dead sounding like Dire Straits, it's only because Dire Straits, I think, were influenced by the dead. And I think Mark mm-hmm. Knopfler definitely bit some things from Jerry in terms of his guitar playing. And I love Mark Knopfler. I'm a fan of Dire Straits. I think they're a really good band. I know Jerry was a fan of Dire Straits. Of course, this is like their big 80s album. But I think like, you know, listen to like So Far Away, that's pretty deady. Mm, I think sure. I, I could see the I could see Jerry getting into that song. <laughs> yeah, that's um, a Jerry ballad. Yeah. Other big albums from this period, the Miami Vice soundtrack, which was about to go on a seven-week tear at number one. Wow. What else is on that? Is it uh, just the theme from Miami Vice? Well, no, it's like you got the Glenn Fry songs, You Belong to the City, and Smuggler's Blues. (laughs) I think those were other hits. I can't remember what else is on there. Just songs about cocaine, basically. (laughs) Yeah. In the Air Tonight? I don't know if that's on that album. It is on there. Okay. I'm looking it up now. And uh, Shaka Khan's got a song, Own the Night. Okay. A lot of songs about the night. Yeah. A lot of songs songs about about cocaine. Uh, yeah, vaguely about cocaine, right? Uh, Tina um, Turner, better be good to me. Oh yeah, that was a, I remember that song. Yeah, okay. Um, so that's a that's a, it's a cross genre hit, really. So that was a that was a big hit that year. You also have songs from the Big Chair by mm-hmm. uh, Tears for Fears. You have No Jacket Required by Phil Collins. You have Brian Adams' Reckless, uh, Summer '69, and. Uh, <laughs> Run to you, big '80s vibes here. Yeah, this is, absolutely this, the thick of the '80s. This is the thick of the '80s, so '80s. Moving on to the number one film at the time, Death Wish Three, <laughs> starring <laughs> Charles Bronson. 
Is that a good Death Wish? I, I have to say, I've not worked my way through the Death Wish franchise. I've seen the first two. The first one okay. is like 70s, very gritty. Yeah. The second one is like maybe the most racist film of all time. <laughs> Don't they just get progressively more oh, yeah. racist and violent and ridiculous? Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's horribly racist. Really despicable movie, I have to say. <laughs> I say that as a person who likes Charles Bronson a lot, but Death Wish two is like is awful and three I, I assume is pretty bad. Other films that came out on this day, uh To Live and Die in LA, William Friedkin, mm-hmm. one of my favorite movies of all time again very cokey very very synthy. cokey yep. it's got a wang wang chung soundtrack right it's uh it's a great soundtrack actually i have that one. amazing amazing city of angels look that song up on wherever you listen to music that's the <laughs> that's like the theme from that movie it plays over the opening credits yeah pretty awesome action that's a movie. great uh music. dollar bin record if you uh oh yeah are looking for a cheap buy at the record store yeah wang chung great film composers love yeah, who knew Love the Wing Chung. It's um, like the guy from Oingo Boingo. Who would have known? Uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, came out around this time. I wonder if Jerry, horror <laughs> film fan, yeah. I, wonder, I wonder how he felt about A Nightmare on Elm Street, if he got into those, or if he was more of like in the classic kind of monster movie thing, if maybe he didn't get yeah. into. Probably a little too gory for him, I think. I don't know, though. I mean, you know, you see some of the drawings that he did. Hmm. Yeah. It seems kind of like macabre, you know, and like Freddy. Sure. Freddy's kind of funny too. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, by the end of that series, it's like full on like campy comedy. Yeah. So I don't know. Someone out there, the magic of Google, we can find out Jerry's stance on a Nightmare on Elm Street. Rocky Four dropped a, a bit sure. later on in this month. Eighties uh, cheese classic. Number one TV shows, top shows of this time. You had at number five. You have Cheers. Number four, sure. sixty minutes. Uh, number three, Murder, She Wrote with Angela Lansbury. That's a show that my wife is watching right now. <laughs> nice. Before bed. It's very comforting for her. Two, Family Ties, which we've already talked about. We have our Family Ties fanfic where Alex and Mallory go to a dead show. Um, like to see that fleshed out a little bit more. Number one, The Cosby Show. Uh, you know, not at all problematic there. <laughs> yeah, not your wife's not watching that one before bed. No, know. probably not. I hope no. not. Yeah. No, it's uh, all of these, three of those were on NBC. Yeah, maybe just two of them. Cheers no, on the Cosby Show, right? Or was Family Ties? Family too? Ties was too, yeah. I think wow, Family so this Th- is like that dominant NBC period. I think that was the start of like must-see TV on Thursday nights. I think Right, the big Thursday night lineup. I think Cosby Ties and Cheers were all uh, Thursday night shows. Yeah, and I, it's a, a special uh, addition to our uh, trip through the past, as I have to call out a very formative sports moment for me that happened just a week before this show which was the 1985 world series it's basically my earliest sports memory uh because i am a despite growing up in chicago i am a cardinals fan uh for ancestral reasons and st louis city of blues the city of blues yeah uh i'm not a blues fan but i am a cardinals fan uh, and then, yeah, the 1985 Cardinals were still probably my favorite baseball team of all time, even though, you know, I was six. I was barely cognizant of sports and uh, athletes. But, uh, yeah, it was a great team, and they lost very controversially in the 1985 World Series to the Kansas City Royals due to a blown call by Don Denkinger in Game 6 at Ooh. first base. So it's... Uh, you know the ump's name. Oh, yeah. There's a whole 30 for 30 about him, I think. Like, he got, you know, death threats and all that. Cardinals fans 
terrible today and terrible back then. Uh, I will include myself in that sometimes by association, but I'm much less uh, nuts than those people. Anyway, I remember it very well. I remember probably because my dad was so sad about it and is why it has left such an impression on me. Uh, but yeah, uh, I was not at the dead show in Richmond uh, in early November. I was still probably depressed about the Cardinals' loss to the Royals, upset loss to the Royals in 1985. Yeah, it's a real shame that you guys haven't won, like, what, like 16 World Series since then, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah only, still... a, only a few. I mean, you know, who's keeping count? Yeah, you gotta, like, uh, nurse your wounds over 1985. Yeah, I was, we were talking before the show, like, I know a lot of people on this roster because I played that card game APA yeah. my, when I was a kid, and my neighbor had the 85 season and I picked the Cardinals probably because they were in the World Series. So I was just dropping some 85 Cardinals references like Joaquin and Uhar. Right. Vince Coleman was my favorite player. Yeah. That's Jack probably Clark. why you like to play with them. Jack Clark, yeah. Because they all had like 99 steal ratings so you could just basically cheat and run people around the bases all the time. Willie great. McGee, Tommy Hur. We could Ozzie. go all day. Tito Landrum, Ozzy. Yeah, beautiful. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talk to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Okay, well, let's get to the show or the shows here for Dick's Picks 21. It's going to be an adventure. We're starting out at the Richmond Coliseum. We have unrest going on in the audience. <laughs> right. Yeah. People being busted all around us. <laughs> Shoot, we got tripping horses out in the, <laughs> out in the parking lot. Horses <laughs> is tripping balls. Uh, exactly. It's a weird scene uh, in a weird time for the Grateful Dead, but I'm glad that we're here, here in 1985. 
We're getting started with uh, a song that we've been pretty familiar with lately. Yeah, we've been hearing a lot. Uh, Dancing in the Street, yeah, which, you know, I think I've said this in a previous episode. This sh- this song is so interesting to me because it is one of those covers that seems to transcend like every Grateful Dead era. And they play it in a way where it's very specific to each era. You have the disco dancing in the streets from the 70s. You have the really primal dancing in the streets from like, you know, like the late 60s, early 70s. And then you you have this dancing, which starts off like in, in very 80s fashion, I feel like, where it sounds like not everything is plugged in. And <laughs> not everyone is like on the same page. It's very groggy at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, this is <laughs> this is part of why I was so, as I said, repulsed <laughs> by this volume of Dick's Picks when I put it on for the first time. Because, man, we just heard two pretty great dancings from 76 on volume 20 uh and then this one rattles in with all of the weird 80s tones of the dead you get pretty quickly brent chiming in with like a real gravelly beautiful (laughs) i can't even do it i had to like gargle with salt water or something before i did that uh but yeah it's like uh yeah you can't even believe it's the same band really right i mean this is less than 10 years later i mean it's a long nine years later but it just does not sound at all like you know, even 76 Dead and 76 Dead, as we talked about, was getting a little bit more slick and radio friendly. Yeah, this is uh, craggy. I, this is craggy yeah. in the extreme. And it is, uh, I don't know, it's just, it was it was a lot to handle. And there's a lot of repeats in this show from the previous volume, which, you know, I don't think they really cared about those when they were putting these out, like repeats from volume to volume. But it, you know, for us listening in close proximity, it's like, wow, they were doing very different things in 1985 than they were in 1976. And it, it takes some some getting used to when you listen to them back to back. I got to say, though, that when Jerry's guitar solo kicks in, I feel like it coalesces. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I think his solo sounds great. And it has a dramatic flourish because it rises out of this groggy murk uh, from the song. And it, <laughs> yeah. And it kind of rises up and it has this very almost like ethereal feel to it to me that I was like, oh, wow, okay, it's coming together. And it kind of made me like this more because of that yeah. moment. It's another case where the uh, the odd recording, the audience recording by the Odie Brothers... I think fits a little better because even in the room, they were having these technical problems with Jerry's guitar. Of course, it's the Grateful Dead. They can't play an opening song without technical difficulties. It sounds like he's playing out of like a little tiny like desktop amp (laughs) for the first two minutes of the song. And then finally, they flip the switch that turns on all the amps and he's like got this like great like distorted tone and the crowd goes nuts. So it's yeah, one of those sort of comeback victory things it's a really sloppy show all together like not just the sound but the band is really out of sync at some points but then they they, it almost makes the moments where they pull it together even better i guess to some extent like it's it's a very loose show in a lot of ways and we'll we'll talk about some of those other moments yeah i feel like you just got to go into this show being like hey man we're visiting 85 this is a weird time Let's lean into the weirdness. Let's lean yeah. into the sloppiness because there's something kind of beautiful about visiting a year that you don't focus a lot of time on. Like I have to say that at this point, I don't know if I need to hear another 1977 show for a while. 
Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's a wonderful year in Grateful Dead history. They 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 sounded great, they playing great, great reputation, great pedigree. But you know, I'm a little tired of '77, so I appreciate the quirkiness of this year that I don't know very well. I, I think I bought into that right away with uh, this show. I'm like, okay, right. we're in '85, baby. You know, the number one song in the country is Whitney Houston, but here's the Dead <laughs> selling out a at an arena. Like, this is great. Um, yeah, I mean, you really got to recalibrate. You're yep. you're, mar- you're much more adaptable than I am, Steve. Because it took me <laughs> it took me a couple times through before I was like, "All right, I can kind of see what they're doing here. I'm on the level. I'm back in the 1980s. I'm wearing a like a like ill-fitting clothing and neon colors, and I'm ready to ready to dig into this." And I, it, I came around on it. I'm wearing my Don Johnson suit with the sleeves pushed up. Oh, nice. I'm, I'm, I'm slicking back my hair. Uh, <laughs> I'm in an 85 frame of mind. Our next song is Cold Rain and Snow, almost like a double opening here. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, Dancing in the Street was a little rough. Let's play another song that we usually open a show with. (laughs) Yeah. and uh, Another one where Bob and Jerry both get an opener. Yeah, exactly. And you um, actually, because we have this thing where you have this theory, which has been disproven on occasion, but also proven to be true on others, that they play this song when it's actually cold, rainy, or snowy. And it seems like at least two of those things were true for this for this show. I think we got it right this time. So we do have a listener on Twitter, uh, Scott Murphy, who tends to fact check our, oh, yeah. our weather reports. Uh, he he got one in before recording this time, and it, at first it looked like I was wrong because he told me he looked it up and it said it was a, a balmy sixty one degrees and clear. Maybe it was on the day of this show, but by the time we got to nighttime, uh, our friend Mister completely confirms that it was cold and wet outside. So we got cold and rain. We didn't there get you snow. Go. It's a, it's Virginia. They don't get a lot of snow, but I, I would say two out of three counts as a victory for my theory in this. Oh, game. absolutely! And you can also hear it again on the audience recording when they get to high time in the second set. Uh, Jerry does the "Come on in" when it's raining line, and everybody like flips out. So oh, even, an even more reliable weather report, live weather report from the Deadheads of 1985 that it, it rained outside this show. I'm convinced. So do you think Jerry was like, "All right, I'm gonna do high time because of this one line." This reference to rain, people will love it. Actually, it's that possible. would explain, because we'll get to that when we get to uh, the second disc, some of the weird choices, mm-hmm. uh, pacing-wise. Yeah. And it almost does make sense that they picked that song solely for the rain reference. Like, we're, we're going to make people sit through this very long, dirgy song because of this one moment of crowd participation. That'll yeah. be great. I mean, they're definitely not above that. Uh, again, another, it reminds me of another Summer 95 thing, like the Deer Creek show where he got death threats and they played Dire Wolf. Like, <laughs> right. they're, they're, they're cheeky like that. Like, uh, they'll do that from time to time. And I mean, you know, the dead deadheads tend to overinterpret dead lyrics, but I think this is one where they're definitely like, here's, here's a couple songs that refer to rain and it's raining outside. You don't have to overthink it. So we go from there into Little Red Rooster and this might be like where I'm a little too tolerant uh, <laughs> of this show because we have two blue standards in this show. And normally for an 80s show, I would find that to be overkill. I actually enjoyed both blues songs uh, on this album. Maybe because I was imagining you listening to Bob Weir's <laughs> <laughs> slide guitar solo and it just made me feel like oh like that made it this, better this is great <laughs> the, like this slide this is bobby slide which is so bobby slide Ooh. uh it sounds like he dipped his slide in like 
some butter and it was kind of but not in a good way kind of it's kind of slippery it's not very precise or you know it's, know, it's kind of all over the place i'm getting like shivers down my spine just remembering it as we're <laughs> recording i mean it is like nails on a chalkboard to me and this i mean this is a broader problem than just bobby blues and bobby slide is his guitar in the 80s i just i do not know what he was going for it sounds so metallic and so rattly it sounds like he's playing like a rake sometimes like it like the way his strings just like rattle in this really unpleasant way to me and i i i love bobby rhythm in the 70s so much and it just kills me that he like did this to his guitar it's like like what did they do to my beautiful boy type of moments every time he really leans into this and like you know it 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 bugs me on some other songs i can get used to it but on little red rooster it's like the combination of his electrified rake guitar and slide is just it's one of the worst sounds like i can imagine there's other parts of this little red rooster that are fine i mean this is like you mentioned that brent's organ is kind of a highlight of the show and i agree that's like the one thing that really pops for me is that brent's organ when they're playing songs that we've heard in other eras a lot it really adds a new dimension that i like and in a on a very tinny sort of recording the organ really adds like a layer of warmth that I appreciate, a fullness that I appreciate. So he sounds really good on this. Jerry's Jerry does a slide solo, which I actually didn't mind in this case, but then Bob comes in with just this like screeching tone <laughs> for a couple minutes and it no. I I can't do it. Sorry. I I mean I like Jerry Slide. As I've said many times, I enjoy Jerry Slide. I think his slide solo on this sounds pretty good. And I yeah, I really like the Brent Oregon on here. And again, it's hard for me to distinguish whether I genuinely don't mind Bob Weir's slide or I just enjoy imagining you listening to it and that's like added to my appreciation like like your dislike adds to my like of it so i don't know i i i can't really tell i i I don't know how genuine my like is but (laughs) the uh the end result is that i'm tickled whenever bob gets to slide out now at this point maybe we need to do one of those like youtube reaction videos where i just listen to like an hour-long compilation of bobby slide (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that can be our, uh, well, it's too late for April Fool's Day, but maybe next year. I noticed that Eric didn't mind you ripping Bobby's slide. I no, think even okay. I think even Eric was like, okay, that's okay. <laughs> I'll grant him that. Hating on Bobby's slide is fine. He didn't like the Jerry hating. a few moments ago that there were two big blues numbers. There's actually like three, I guess. I For some reason Stagger Lee, which comes next, I don't put I don't slot that purely in the blues lane. Maybe because Jerry sings it? 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, which it gives it a, like a different feel than like when Bob plays blues. Yeah. I mean, it, it. Maybe we had discussed this last time we got a Stagger Lee, but it. You know, so Stagger Lee is like a blues standard, right? I mean, it dates back. It's another one that is sort of like a dead original that is playing on an old traditional. So kind of folk, kind of blues, depending on who's playing it. Uh, but the the dead version of it is so like light and peppy, which really does not match the lyrics of the song at all. It's like a, you know, straight up murder ballad, revenge ballad, revenge murder. You know, I guess it, like it, it's a blues song historically, uh, but not really when the dead plays it. I, I, I don't know. I really like the dead version. I like it when it pops up, uh, but it's just such an incongruously happy arrangement of the song. Like it's got to be the happiest song about somebody getting shot in the balls <laughs> that anybody's ever played. Yeah, I appreciate that juxtaposition of like, getting shot in the balls but like i'm happy about it you know you got the duality of that going on i think it's from the perspective of the uh the the woman who's doing the revenging and the song right. rather than the people getting shot <laughs> right right which yeah would explain the jauntiness of it you know i'm sure stagger had it coming uh from from that scorned woman this is another song where i, I really like what jerry and brent are doing again i think that they were they're the stars of this show for me and and you know you mentioned earlier about how i think with brent you know he's so associated i think with that late 80s setup that he had where it was very midi heavy you know, those huge splashy synths on like those huge stadium rock you know, so that that era of the dead at the end of the 80s it is i think pretty fun to just hear him work in the organ so much in the show i was really digging that a lot i think it elevates for me some of these songs that i might not otherwise really get into yeah that's it's an element of the show that i really latched onto as being something that i like about this era that you don't get from 70s dead yeah absolutely from there we go into a double shot of cowboy bob we have uh, me and my uncle and we have big river i have to say for me again i feel like i've become a, a big big river partisan lately this is always a song i enjoy because i like to hear jerry rip it up i also again i like what brent was doing on this song yeah. He plays this like kind of manic piano solo. <laughs> uh I mean you you liken it to like what like cocktail jazz. Yeah, it's sort of like that soft rock mid eighties yacht rock sort of sound. I, I actually really enjoyed this part of the first set, even though we've heard Uncle and River a lot, because <laughs> it's kind of like the perfect garbage cookie of 80s Dead, where you've got Jerry still doing the sort of Bakersfield sound, like lead guitar through the whole song, country guitar. You've got the drummers sort of slipping back and forth between a, con a country beat and a disco beat. There's like a couple moments in Uncle where they slip back into the old, like, disco pranking drums that they'll do in like the late 70s and then you've got brent putting on this like doobie brothers soft rock keyboard 
uh, over everything. So it's just like a train wreck of Eras of the Dead, which, yeah, it's a train wreck, but I actually kind of think it works. Like, I think it's just like a really bizarre combination that only this era of the band could could pull off on you know and it, it livens up some covers that we you know just hear over and over again in the 70s that sound kind of samey well and i have to say too that in the context of this album i appreciate the tempo of the first disc because it is relatively energetic and i almost wonder if they got a little winded <laughs> later on in the show because yeah. the tempos get really slow uh a little bit later on that thing you were mentioning about them slipping you know in and out of the disco thing i really dug that and you know i think that carries over to brown-eyed women too it's a pretty fleet rendition of that of a song that you know we've again we've heard many times and you know and not to belabor this point but like I do kind of wish there was like an 80s song in the place of brown-eyed women here. Like, right. like if Althea was right here. I would have really appreciated that because this I love brown-eyed women, but we've heard that a lot. And this is like a pretty good version, but you know, again, I think it would have... I just wonder to what degree they still felt excited by this song at this time. And if maybe they would have been more engaged with, you know, a, a more recent track. Yeah, this is exactly what I was talking about earlier, where there's a lot of... 70s standards right here between me and my uncle and big river and brown-eyed women and then jack straws next like it's songs that you hear night in and night out in 70s dead shows uh but it's being played by a very different band and so rather than hearing that mismatch maybe it would have been better to get althea or stranger or you know any of the 80s sort of songs that were sort of more made for this band a better fit for this band i mean i like this brown-eyed women a lot this is like one of the songs where i noticed phil which another thing that disappoints me about 80s shows generally is that phil feels like less of a a main actor than he does in a lot of the 70s shows though my sense from reading around and reading dead comments about this year deadhead comments about this year is that this is kind of like a phil comeback year like i think he tried to cut way back on drinking uh sometime in 84 and in 85 started sort of stepping up and being like the old phil again so i think when he does pop through and i do and again i think on the audience recording he pops a lot more it's a lot easier to pay attention to him but on the healy mix you really have to like listen for phil he's not taking center stage a lot but brown-eyed women is one where you can hear him kind of popping away doing a little disco in the background and you know supporting the song a little bit better than you would normally hear him in this era well and i don't want to spoil anything that's coming up later in the show but phil makes his presence felt in a very big way on the mic. Maybe somewhat misguided, but I appreciated <laughs> it. I appreciated him uh, showing up in the way he did. It's uh, enthusiastic. Yeah, so yeah, we'll get to that here in a minute. Um, you, know, you mentioned the Jack Straw. I have to say that I was surprised by how much I liked Don't Ease Me In at the end mm. of the first disc, which is also the end of the first set. A relatively short set. I think it's only about 50 minutes or so. Yeah, very short, which I don't think is that out of line for this time. They started playing shorter and shorter sets, of course, in the 80s and 90s, but it, it really stands out when you're listening again after some 70s shows. Like, this is the entire first disc, right? And it's rare that you get a Dick's Picks disc that isn't just packed, like, you know, from the middle of the disc to the end with data. Uh, this one has some blank space, actually. They have open space. And... I, again, Brent coming through with some really cool organ fills mm -hmm. on this song. And it's interesting because I almost feel like his organ 
is more prominent than his vocals. Like it's hard for me to pick out his backing vocals on some of these songs, but he's really making his presence felt instrumentally. And uh, yeah, just the organ on here, I think it really adds, I guess, some grit maybe to these performances. It's a right. good kind of jolt of energy that he's providing. It really shows again, like what Brent brought to the band at a time when, you know, certainly Jerry was not at full strength and how he could support Jerry and be another front man in the band. And the interplay between those two guys, Jerry and Brent, I think is like the highlight of this uh, this album in a lot of ways for me. Yeah, I, mean, I think, you know, this is the latest we've gone in the Brent era in the Dick's Big series. And I think you can definitely as track the progression of Brent's gaining in confidence and gaining in stature within the band uh, between, you know, the 79 show we heard and then the 81 show we heard and then this show where he is not quite sharing frontman duties yet again yeah you're right we don't get a lead vocal from brent really we get sort of a duet vocal in the second set but we don't get one of his songs we don't get a song where he's really the the featured player but his organ is becoming a prominent voice in the band for sure i mean this first set in general is fine i think it's like a pretty standard first set for the time and you know as we said is short i i, I don't know i mean it's it gets back to this thing that we've talked about before with 80s shows. It's always funny to me that they are so set on releasing complete shows from the 80s, but they'll often do a highlights, sticks picks from the 70s. And maybe there were technical reasons for that, but while this is an enjoyable disc, maybe if they had sprinkled in some stuff from the Halloween show the night before or made sort of a Richmond highlights compilation instead of including the full show, might have been a better set altogether. But you can knock that, check that one off on your 36 from the vault bingo, where we argue that this should have been a, a, a highlights compilation instead of a full show, which is something we always do a lot. say that i would almost make that argument for the second disc because okay. the first disc i agree with you it's not spectacular but i think it's pretty entertaining and it gives you a good flavor of what they sounded like in 1985 whereas the second disc with the exception of the end where i think it starts to pick up um we're starting to slog here i think on the second disc because you know we mentioned on the first disc there's a good amount of energy uh, there's some sloppiness going on, but it seems like the, the tempos are pretty good. Uh, there's some spirited playing, you know, Jerry and Brent are stepping up. This second disc, man, it's it's truly like, you know, molasses in uh, quicksand, you know, brontosaurus, you know, slowly dying type 
stuff here. This is like, <laughs> you know, just a lot of lumbering around uh, here on the second disc. And it starts with Samson and Delilah, which is not a song that I, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Samson and Delilah. Although uh, the one we heard in our previous episode, Dick's Picks 20, I thought was pretty great. And we've had some like really enjoyable Samsons actually. I think mm-hmm. lately, maybe it's, I'm just comparing it to what we just heard, but this one really felt plotting to me compared, you know, to what we just got in Dick's Picks 20. Yeah. It's another one that suffers just by juxtaposition with the previous volume. A fun thing you can hear that they cut out of this, the official release, is that there's some like some weird like like Brent comments, like sort of James Brown, like keep it funky like banter before they kick into this um which is which is fun to hear and i wish they would have included it but uh they cut out you know most of the in-between song tuning and banter uh, on this one yeah i mean it's like uh it's a it's it's a good sort of continuation of the upbeat energy of the first set i think uh but then the entire tenor of this set totally changes after this song i mean this is the last upbeat song i would say for an hour almost (laughs) of this show uh which you know like i i i totally get what you're saying about it being i don't know low energy or sluggish uh but this is this is definitely the part of the show that i came around on the first time i heard it i was like i cannot believe they're stringing these songs together like what a downer this must have been to see but it's it's a very unusual set list and as I said, we talked to Mr. Completely about the experience of being at this show, and I think it was very much a response to how insane the vibe was outside the venue and inside the venue, and how kind of crazy and dangerous it was that there was, in this sort of like classic dead audience feedback way, there was a conscious decision by the band to chill everybody out <laughs> with a very quiet set, which makes me appreciate it a little bit more. And again, I'll call back to what I said about maybe that doesn't make it the best like live album choice or Dick's Picks choice, but it does actually make it a pretty interesting show, interesting and unique show. Yeah, if you think about it as like this next set of music being a response to the atmosphere, the charged atmosphere around them, not feeding into that charged atmosphere, but trying to like maybe chill everybody out a little bit and calm everybody down so you're just imagining like just irate hippies cooling out after you know having some altercations with police and now we're gonna hear like the slowest high time of all time and we're also gonna hear the slowest he's gone (laughs) because like really you know maybe i overstated my case a little bit ago to me it's, it's really like that sequence i think after that it starts to pick up for me a little bit but the high time into he's gone i think that's about like a 20 minute block of music or so mm-hmm. and uh it feels like it's like 40 minutes it's <laughs> really really slow I, it just made me feel like couldn't they have like found some of that fun powder they had for <laughs> dicks picks 20 and like you know, move it eight, you know, like nine years into the future and like ingest that. I Maybe not. Like you're saying, they're trying to chill these people out by like putting them to sleep. Maybe, you know, we're going to we're going to have some nap time here. Yeah, it's one of these things where 
I mean, I've been at shows like this too, where it just feels like the the crowd energy is like in the red, right? The needle is is clipping, and like you need people get very like religious about this with the dead too, where they like look to Jerry as almost like a conductor of the mood of the room, right? And I feel like that's kind of the rep of this show is that Jerry, the benevolent Jerry, saw things getting out of control, saw the chaos going too far out in the audience, and decided to like chill everybody out with sort of a lullaby show. I mean, that's kind of what this is. This is like, it becomes a very emotional lullaby sequence of events over the next several songs here where uh, it, it, it things had just gotten too weird. Too weird with the, it's like, like when people are on a trip and you need like a shaman to kind of like talk you down and tell you everything's going to be all right and just chill out, man. It's like, an interesting is, theory, but like yeah. they also take things in kind of an evil direction by the end of this disc. Sure. Yeah. And, and then they're just going into full on like, you know, <laughs> bar mode. band territory. <laughs> right. So it really is like, you know, we're going the full spectrum here. This really is like a trip. Yeah, uh, in this set, and I'm going on my own trip. I think I was dosed along with the horses because we get to spoonful <laughs> next, and uh, you know another long blues that again I found myself really like enjoying to my utter surprise, and I really like Jerry's guitar tone on the solo. It sounds mm-hmm. pretty dirty and nasty. Yeah, this version also reminded me a lot of the Cream version of this song. Um, which I, I'm sure, I mean, I, I assume that that informed their their performance of this. I mean, because they didn't play Spoonful all that much, did they? I mean, wasn't this like a relatively rare cover for them? Yeah. Well, I mean, they played fairly frequently in the 80s. It almost always came out of He's Gone or it came out of Truckin' sometimes, too. We heard it like on Dick's Picks 9. There's that very long He's Gone jam that sort of flirts with Spoonful but never goes into the vocals of it. That's right, that's right. Uh, yeah, so it was like a touch point for them in the 80s and 90s. I mean, there's, I think, 52 versions, official versions of Spoonful, but I think they teased it a lot as well in other, in other shows. Yeah, I like this a lot too because, you know, where typical Bobby Blues, like the Little Red Rooster in the first set, can be very, like, blues hammery, kind of like hard rock, aggressive blues. Like, this is like spooky blues, which is more my speed. Like, it, it's got that sort of haunted housey organ from, from Brent throughout. It's got that really nasty Jerry solo. It reminded me a little bit of Fever. So it's like a like the jazz standard Fever. Like it's got kind of like a sparse, creepy energy to it that I really liked.
It definitely does not like offer any contrast in this string of slow songs, right? Like it's not, you get back-to-back Jerry songs, which is unusual and high time and he's gone. And then this is about where you would expect Bob to come in with something that is just a completely different mood from the previous 20 minutes of music. And we've complained about this a lot where you'll have like a really, you know, beautiful, emotional Jerry moment followed by Bob doing like El Paso, (laughs) like kind of tone deaf like mood shift. So I kind of like that this set is maintaining a uniform mood, even though you are here switching from the Jerry song to the Bob song. And you're going to get another Jerry Bob combo next, which is also kind of let's keep it in this like unified mood instead of like jerking people around. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, I mean, spoonful to me in comparison to the he's gone, it sounds like speed metal to me almost because the he's gone (laughs) is I think like the slowest he's gone of all time. Right. And yeah, Spoonful is slow, but it does feel more energetic to me just because it's 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 not quite the mournful dirge that he's gone is. It feels a little more, you know, sexual and a little more dangerous feeling. So I think I appreciate it for that. From there we go into uh Comes a Time. We heard this in, in Dick's Picks 20 mm-hmm. as well. And um, I remember I really liked that version. And actually, I really quite like this one, too. I, I Just from a pacing standpoint, I think I would have liked it if they would have not played uh, High Time. I think you could have lost that. If you're going to have High Time and Comes a Time, I don't think you can do both of those in the same set. It feels like pick one time song. <laughs> the double time. Yeah. You need one time song. And I think Comes a Time, I think just generally speaking, I prefer that song. Anyway, but I think this particular... Uh, rendition is superior to high time and again you know this song often comes down to the guitar solo for me does jerry deliver a great guitar solo and he does here and it is one of those moments you talk about him being a shaman uh in this set i think this is where he actually is starting to become more of a shaman because this is such a beautiful guitar solo and it is probably the highlight of this set for me up until this point i think there's other highlights after this but yeah, I think he really kills the guitar solo. Yeah, and singing too. I mean, I think what bugs me a lot about 80s Dead shows is that Jerry's voice has gone really downhill uh, from the 70s. Uh, but no. this is actually a really strong vocal show from Jerry, I think, in general. Uh, and This Comes a Time is one we've talked about before where Jerry ballads take on an extra poignancy the more the closer to death he gets because Dead songs are so obsessed with death. That Jerry getting old and knocking on death's door, you know, adds an extra sort of meta layer of emotion to the song. Uh, And this is another one where, like, when he gets to the only love can fill lines, you know, towards the end of the song it's 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 a gun punch like it's uh it's very moving uh i see what you mean like yeah it absolutely i was shocked the first time listening to this set that they called for comes a time here because it is like wow they are really going for this mellow mood in this set and i think they it's funny too because i think at the end of this you talk about his solo there's a moment towards the end of this song where he is soloing, and I think the drummers decide that the song is over <laughs> and start slowing it down. And Jerry like powers through the drummers and just keeps on soloing. And I think the drummers are actually trying to move into drums. Like they think that drums is next. You can kind of hear them doing sort of like the more busy drumming, like they're going to go into drum space. Uh, but Jerry powers through with the solo, and then they throw in yet another 
slow atmospheric song uh, before they even get into the drum space section. So I don't know what you think about uh, this next stretch. Yeah, well, I would say that this sequence beginning with Lost Sailor, and you mentioned we go from Lost Sailor, we do drums, then we go into space, and then we end with Saint of Circumstance. I think this is like the best part of this show. It's my favorite part of the show. And I actually feel like Lost Sailor, they, it is another mid-paced song, but again, it doesn't feel like, to me, again, like I think the high time and the he's gone, they they both feel like, a, like lethargic to me, whereas I feel like this performance has more of a sense of purpose. And the way that it slowly disintegrates into, into drums at the end, I think it's actually like a pretty well-orchestrated segue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just feel like this part of the show has a narrative to it that the rest of the set doesn't have. Like this feels like a piece of music, you know, this sequence that is going to last, is this like a half hour, 40 minutes? I mean, it's, I mean, yeah. the drums space alone it's is 20 minutes. quite a long drum space. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we were talking about this last week with the 76 show, obviously, the dead were sounding really great at that time. But if there's a criticism to make of that era of the dead is that it seems like a little straightforward. They weren't really getting far out at all in that show. It's much more of like a, an arena rock crowd-pleasing show. And I think that's a bonus of, of, of this Dick's Picks 21 is that there is this section. There's actually two spaces in this show <laughs> where, you know, it is like, okay, this is the dead getting out there and things kind of turn evil here. A little dark sounding, and I really yeah. responded to that. I think it, it really comes across well here. Right. Again, maybe feeding off of the vibe of the Richmond run, right? Like feeding off sort of the, the, the evil uh, outside the venue and in the room. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it amazed me mm. that this is the only time that they split up Lost Sailor and Saint of Circumstance like this, like bookending drums in space, because it works great. I think like they came out of space with Saint of Circumstance a few times once they separated out Sailor and Saint, like later in the 80s and into the 90s. But this is like a really kind of inspired setlist choice. And I think probably one of the reasons they chose this show, because it's a really one of a kind setlist quirk that they I mean, this is right in the era where they almost always played Sailor directly into Saint. Like there was no deviation from these two songs being paired together. So in a time when the dead could be very formulaic, sort of the opposite of the 76 set list hijinks that we talked about last episode. Uh, it's really fun that they, they broke it up this way and, and tried something new seemingly on the fly because the drummers totally do not seem clued into the fact that, uh, you know, we're delaying drums in space, <laughs> not just uh, after comes a time, but also after Lost Sailor. So, yeah, and the drums is really good. I mean, this is like a it's a really cool example of drums uh, at this time where I think it started to expand a little bit. I mean, this is definitely a drums where Mickey is playing the beam. Oh yeah, uh, at Get the, the beam end out. of the drums part, and at the start of space, you're getting some really good beam action. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm always in favor of, of course. Oh yeah, yeah. We gotta we gotta praise the beam because, well, you know, and Eric pointed this out. We're a little tough on Mickey sometimes. So when when there's some good beam action, you have to uh, shout it out and uh, be grateful for Mickey bringing that in. You know, it pains me to say this, being such a CD uh, booster on the show, <laughs> but I have to say that like the CD format 
does screw with this drum space a bit because even if you listen to this on a streaming platform, you are going to get the fade out yeah. at the end of drums and then it comes back into space. And if you listen to it on CD, unless you have the multi-disc changer at home, <laughs> which if you do, God bless you, I'm tipping my cap, you're going to have to take the CD out at the end of drums and you have to put it in the space and it's going to kill the vibe. That definitely seems like something where you want to go for the audience recording of this where you have the seamless stretch of music here and you're not going to, you know, get the buzz kill of the fade out in there. It's a bummer that they had to split it up this way. And again, maybe another reason to listen to the Odie Brothers audience recording instead of the uh, the soundboard that is presented on Dick's Picks. But yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of a bummer to, to split it up that way. But I think, uh, yeah. I mean, this space, I don't know. We got two spaces on disc three. I thought it was a little bit much to have two spaces on one disc. And this is probably my least favorite of the two because... You get the first part, which is cool, with the beam and Jerry coming out. Uh, but then you get this very long sort of Jerry-Bob duet, which is fun for a little bit, but kind of loses me. I mean, it's it's an interesting document because I think it was around like 87, 88. It was after Jerry's coma when they really started leaning into the MIDI effects on the guitars, at least. I think MIDI had already sort of been incorporated into uh, the drums and Billy and Mickey, but once they really got into MIDI, every space is like, let's play around with our MIDI effects. And this is like sort of the tail end of space where they are just using guitar pedals, a lot of guitar pedals and a lot of crazy sounding guitar pedals, but they're not fully into this sort of digital computerized sounds. Right. Um, but I think, I don't know, it loses me a little bit like I'm more tolerant of drum space than I used to be, but this is one that kind of is a little bit of a snooze by the end. It doesn't need to be 11 minutes long. It's the longest track on the entire volume, which is a little unfortunate. I feel confident in nominating Disc 3 as one of the more insane discs uh, in <laughs> Dick's Picks history. True. Because you mentioned the two spaces, which I appreciate both spaces. I, I actually like this space more than you do. Um, I agree that it's the weaker of the two spaces. We're going to talk about the other space in a minute here. I enjoy this space. I also like the idea of having two spaces on here and how that's a contrast with some of the other songs that are on this disc. Like, we're really, this is like Whiplash City on disc three. Uh, (laughs) We're really, yeah, we're going from, I don't even know if I could use the word sublime 
yeah, I was gonna say we go from the sublime to the to the ridiculous on this disc. It might just be from like the ridiculous to like the extremely ridiculous. Right. It's like two on, flavors on of ridiculous. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's absolutely. Like, it's totally unhinged that there are two spaces and this segment we're about to get to. Yeah, and you know, I love it. As I said at the beginning, I decided going into this album, I'm gonna lean into the goofiness of this era uh, and of this particular album i'm gonna enjoy the ride uh so when i say this is one of the most insane discs in dicks picks history maybe the most insane certainly going to be in the conversation we have a lot of dicks picks to go so i don't have enough perspective to make that declaration yet but maybe the most insane disc we've had so far you know just in terms of contrasts yeah uh, yeah it, it's crazy. So we go from the space, and then we go back into state of circumstance. And again, I think we both have said this that we that we like the sequence. And like, I think you know, again, the entry into the drums from Lost Sailor was really well done. I think coming out of space into state of circumstance is also like pretty well executed. Right. And like I said, Sane of Circumstance is pretty much the first upbeat song we've had since Samson. <laughs> oh, yeah. Opened the set. So the contrast of getting into this, you know, more hard charging like song finally is really jarring and kind of nice to hear. And, you know, Sane of Circumstance is one of these songs that I was talking about where it's like 80s dead sounds good playing Sane of Circumstance. All these weird quirks of 80s dead, like Bob's weird metallic guitar tone and Brent playing this really sharp sounding Rhodes. Like it comes together a lot better on a song like Saint of Circumstance than it does on, say, you know, Brown Eyed Women or something like that, where it sounds wrong in a weird way if you listen to mostly 70s dead. Yeah. And, you know, again, shout out to Go to Heaven. That album, I think, pretty underrated record. It, you know, the production of it, of course, has been maligned. It's a pretty soft rock sounding album, but in terms of material, like great songs from that record. Sailor and, Cir- and Saint Circumstance, of course, from that record. Althea is from that album. You have uh, Alabama Getaway. Lots of good tunes to be drawing from. I think Strangers but, on that record, of course. Right. Um, so, yeah, lots of good tunes from Go but to Heaven. The Dead are not uh, interested in playing their own tunes for the rest no. of the show. No, man. <laughs> And uh, I believe you wanted some upbeat material here. So we're going full on party at this point. Yeah. Presumably the people are chilled out now. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I think in a moment like this where the cops are busting people to some negative vibes, all you can say is, give me some lovin'. (laughs) Give me, give me some lovin'. Yeah. Uh, I describe this as the wedding band part of the show, which you took some offense to. And we'll get to that. Just because of one song. Yeah. But I mean, so two of the three songs that they're going to play here are Give Me Some Lovin' and Gloria, which if you were at a wedding in 1985, I imagine, you probably heard those songs, right? Oh, yeah. Like a boomer, a boomer wedding. Like, I mean, this is some classic like Time Life, Sounds of the 60s type uh, <laughs> music. These are songs that any band in America would know how to play in 1985. And what's so funny about it? is that I don't even think the dead really know how to play these songs that well in 1985. The entry to Give Me Some Lovin' is ridiculously sloppy. Yeah, it's like <laughs> They super... are playing in like six different times <laughs> at the start of it. Yeah, it's like, it's one of those things that like where I could almost talk myself into believing that they did it on purpose, that they were trying to like <laughs> quirk up this song somehow. 
which yeah. yeah again total wedding band standard you know bar band central i'm almost surprised given the selections in this part of the show that they didn't bust out like a mustang sally you know <laughs> yeah, exactly. like that would have been like a perfect accompaniment to some of these songs perfectly fine songs you know spencer davis group their version of this the you know the one the the hit version i think they originated this song Right. Yeah, that's a classic oldie. You know, I'm not I'm not gonna turn my nose up at that if it shows up on the radio, although there aren't really oldie stations anymore that play songs like this unless you have like satellite radio. But at any rate, I guess this was a song that they again, like I mentioned this earlier, I mean they would play these kind of like left field borderline corny covers in the eighties. This was like part of their repertoire at this time. And I guess that was just like the crowd pleasing aspect of what they were doing. Like in Exactly. They, they had an aging audience that was in. This is kind of like post Big Chill too, you know. Right. So, so like oldies radio is really becoming a thing. I think by this time in the eighties. Mm-hmm. So I'm, uh, I'm sure that played into this as well. You know, like okay, we're gonna remind you, aging people, of your youth. You know, your college right. days. Well, I th- I think this is sort of the early stages of the dead becoming like a living symbol of the 60s too which right. is sort of what happened in the 90s where people would go to a dead show and hang out on the lot and dress like it was the 60s and pretend like they were time traveling back to some like idealized late 60s uh Woodstock generation vision uh and which, which is like the grossest part of Grateful Dead fandom I think exactly I think, yeah and and thankfully I I feel like they've grown out of that I and it's Part of what I think has made them more palatable to younger generations. Because um, I know, like, when I was a kid, that was a big thing that was foregrounded about the dead, their mm-hmm. connection. Like, they were associated with the 60s so much in a way that I don't feel like they are as much now. I mean, we've talked about this before that, like, for a lot of dead fans of our generation, you know, people that came to them later, they're celebrated as much for their 70s material as they are for the, the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, but that boomer nostalgia aspect of, of dead fandom is like so gross. Yeah. And I think that's part of why I don't really like this stretch of songs. I mean, all right, wait, I I like the next one, but give me some love and Gloria are just, as we said, corny, corny choices uh, that are kind of fun to hear. And it's like, this is the part of the set where they just feel like they're playing very loose and having a good time after a pretty heavy first part of the second set. But it doesn't really move me because it is so cliche. It smacks of cliche, I guess, to some extent. But one thing I do appreciate about it is that we get to hear Phil sing in I all know. Of his mid-80s glory, doing a duet with Brent, essentially, which is how they always played this song. Oh, uh, man. I love Phil the Phil is, Brent. Phil Brent oh my God. coming together, that, that vocal blend. I mean, that oh, is such a unique... It's a powerful combo. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, talk about the Wolf Brothers. You know, those are those were some wolfy brothers right there, man. And and Phil, man, he is like after years of not singing, uh, due to his vocal nodes or his alcoholism or whatever his excuse was for not singing for many, many years, he is really trying to sell Gimme Some Love in here. Even though he is not in sync at all with Brent. Uh he's just kinda like bellowing <laughs> in the background. But yeah, I mean I kind of appreciate that because I love Phil and I love Phil uh singing despite his uh you know sort of lack of talent in that area well i yeah i just like the idea of of phil asking someone to give him some loving 
You know? <laughs> that like, too, yeah. The less, the least yeah. sexual of the Grateful Dead, I, I, would, I would say. This like <laughs> this like lascivious song being sung by by Phil Lesh. Yeah, it's a, it's Phil a great wearing combo. like a, a tucked in t shirt and right. <laughs> stone wash jeans and yeah, like, yeah enormous Coke glasses. glasses. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just perfect. Great juxtaposition. Yeah. I'm sure there were women just throwing brassiers all over the place <laughs> during that. Um, that leads into She Belongs to Me, which uh, is a Bob Dylan song from 1965, Bring It All Back Home. And one thing we haven't really talked about in this episode is that they, 1985 was the 20th anniversary of The Grateful Dead, which I'm sure also was feeding into some of the nostalgia that was going on with them at this time, being so associated with the 60s, of course, and the 20th anniversary being an opportunity to, to look back again at Haight-Ashbury, the acid test, all that kind of stuff. I have to say, I really loved this cover. Uh, they didn't play this song very often. I think they played it like a total of nine times. Well, yeah, only in 1985, except for one random 1966 version. Yeah, just crazy. And just generally speaking, Jerry Garcia is my favorite interpreter of Bob Dylan songs. I guess other than Bob Dylan himself, of course. And that includes the songs that he played with the dead. But also, like, if you listen to Jerry Garcia Band, he really went, you know, even deeper with, with, with Bob Dylan. And the thing I always appreciate about Jerry is that he, I think, was a genuine fan of, of Bob, along with being a genuine friend to Bob. And he would always dig out songs that weren't the obvious Bob Dylan songs. And, you know, famous examples with Jerry Garcia Band, of course, is like covering Senor Tales of Yankee Power from (laughs) Street Legal, which at the time, Street Legal was not a very well-regarded album. It's actually become um, better regarded in recent years, certainly after it was remixed in the mid-aughts, because when it initially came out, it was known as being kind of like a muddy-sounding record. And you know, also songs like Tough Mama, you know, covering that. And I think She Belongs to Me also is in that camp. You know, it's a, it's from a very famous record, but this isn't It's All Over Now, Baby Blue or uh, It's All Right, Ma or Mr. Tambourine Man, like some of the big songs from that right. record. It's a yeah, bit yeah. of a deeper cut. And it's not Watchtower. Right. And I always feel like Jerry approaches Dylan's songs with such a great sensitivity to them. Mm-hmm. Again, really showing that he was a fan. And uh, yeah, this is a beautiful rendition. And it, it, in a way, it's unfortunate that he didn't play the song more often, but I'm sure that that was also probably part of the appeal of picking the show, just the scarcity of this song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's a beautiful version, and it's, you know, there's a lot of slow Jerry songs already in this set, but it, that doesn't bother me at all for listening to this version, which has another beautiful Jerry vocal and some great Jerry solos, and yeah, it's a song that I wish they had played a lot more, uh, because I think it's, it's, it's an arrangement that they do a really nice job with. 
slowing it down a little bit you know, really bringing out the sort of soulful feeling what, from what is like sort of a rare romantic song for Dylan. Yeah, it's really nice. You you uh, push back on this being a, a wedding band mini set because wedding bands wouldn't play She Belongs to Me. But I, I would respond to that with at every wedding, there's like the one cool uncle who like makes a weird request to the wedding band or the wedding DJ. And the wedding band is always really excited to play it because they're so sick of playing Give Me Some Lovin' and Gloria that they get to play like a Dylan deep cut. And so the weird uncle with the ponytail, like, and his, you know, partner, like, go out and dance to this one song that nobody else has ever heard of. (laughs) And it, it, like, kills the whole vibe until they come back and play something safer. So I think this is still part of the wedding band set. It's just, like, the quirky part of the wedding band set. Well, you know, there's a part of me that, like, I mean... I love that this is on the album and it, it is really a highlight of this, again, truly insane disc, <laughs> disc three here on Dick's Picks 21. But there's a part of me that wishes it wasn't there because it's like a sea of sanity in a run of, uh, you know, we have Give Me Some Lovin' and then you have Gloria and then you end up at Keep Your Day Job <laughs> after <laughs> yeah. that. Incredible run. It's almost like, oh, she belongs to me. It's almost like messing up what could have been just a historic trifecta of like (laughs) bullshit, you know, at the end of the show. Um, And yeah, but yeah, keep your day job, which I've argued on this show is the worst Grateful Dead song of all time. (laughs) And I'm not going to back away from that. Uh, here, although I gotta say I didn't bathroom break this. I, you know, I, maybe because I was in the eighty-five frame of mind. I'm like, nope. You know, give me seconds, give me thirds of uh, shit stew. You know, I'm gonna smile and like it. I'm gonna be a good guest in this year. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's really the only way that this show could have ended. Yeah, uh, is with keep your day job. At this point, the energy has gotten so weird. <laughs> that, I mean, what else were they going to play for an encore at, at this time in Dead history? I don't want to skip over Gloria, too, because the dense arrangement of it is extremely hammy Bob, right? So they do oh, the spelling yeah. part, except both times they do the spelling part, Bob does a like, sort of like fake interruption where he's like, no, 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 wait a minute. And they like have to start the spelling over again. So it, it is just like... I don't know. It is. It's really something. I mean, yeah. I, what do you again, that you once? listen to the audience recording and people are eating it up. Like people love that they're singing along to Gloria at the end of this show. And like, I assume if I was there in 1985 and not six years old, uh, I also would have really enjoyed this. But uh, it, it is, uh, it's, it's a little tough to swallow given the emotional depths of the Grateful Dead. And then you get Gloria. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I really mean, corny Gloria. My again. only again, I'm gonna go back to the, like the post Big Chill era of like that we were in right now, and 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 the relative like novelty of oldies radio, and that, that to me is like maybe the only context with which this makes sense. Because mm-hmm. again, to go back to the point we've made a couple times in this episode, the dead being symbols of the, of the '60s at this time. And I'm sure there were a lot of people who were older that appreciated hearing these songs like from their youth. And there were probably like a fair number of like younger college students who bought the Big Chill soundtrack and liked hearing these songs in a live setting. So yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, there's so many choices that 
the dead made in their set list that like maybe don't make sense to us 35 40 years 50 years later but they sounded great in the room and you know that's what matters more if they liked it at the time and then we are on a podcast you know all these years later trying to make sense of like what the hell they were thinking in the moment Hmm. it made me wonder too if like you know the the patty smith gloria was also like i think sort of a hit so I feel like that was almost, you know, for, for a younger generation of fans, I might have been fresher in people's minds in 1985 than the Van Morrison them version of Gloria. And it just made me wonder if the dead ever, like, listened to Patti Smith. Patti Smith was a deadhead. She liked the dead. She's done a lot of, she covered, I think, Black Peter on that one uh, dead covers record. But I don't, I don't know. Patti Smith, you know, she was friends with a lot of people that maybe kind of touch upon the dead, but I don't know if there was ever any crossover there. Well, there was also like that Shadows of Night version of Gloria, which I think was like the hit that you hear mm. on oldies radio, like that there was like the American garage band. That... Oh, you don't hear the them version? I don't think so. I think, I mean, maybe that happened later when, because uh, I feel like the, there was like a Van Morrison Greatest Hits CD that came out. Hmm. And like at the end of the 80s where it's like a black cover and there's like a microphone on the cover and yeah, I think Gloria's yeah. on there and Here Comes the Night is on there. But yeah, I don't know. I'd be interested in hearing that chronology because I feel like them, like that album, I don't know how widely available that was in America until like it was put on CD. I don't know. I could be wrong, but I know the Shadows of Night version was a hit in America. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the 1980 run here. Right. So at the end of the record. Quartet of songs, right? Yeah, we have we have our second space of the third disc and i think we both agreed that this space um is better we like we both like this one quite a bit it's kind of like a funky space yeah and it uh it feels more like a full band space rather than the other one being sort of jerry and bob dominated this is when brent had the like really old vintage synthesizer so you get some some cool synthy tones the drummers are out for the entirety of this space which i always appreciate because it keeps it from kind of floating off into i guess space uh jerry's playing some cool notes like yeah it's like it's really good i I questioned whether having two spaces on one disc was necessary uh but i'm glad that this one made the cut because it's 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 a cool space i mostly question it because i still feel like our man ned lagan was robbed on that one alexandria uh palace 74 set where they, you know, didn't include the Sea Stones, uh, oh, Eyes yeah. of the World, and even on uh, Volume Twelve, where they abridge Sea Stones down to like four minutes. I'm like, if you can include a solid twenty minutes of space <laughs> on one CD uh, from the '80s, you could have included a full Sea Stones uh, from one of these '73, '74 sets. But I uh, like you, you know. uh, reviving some leg and drama. Wow, Bringing some course, leg and yeah. drop onto season three. I appreciate that. Spicy, you know, yeah. You know, to me, the double space makes more sense than including like this random Ico Ico <laughs> yeah. that comes next. Because again, I I appreciate the spaces that are on here. The Ico Ico, I don't know why we needed to have this on here. Yeah, I don't know. This this song is fine. Um, it usually just makes me appreciate Samson and Delilah, I guess, because I feel like these songs <laughs> yeah. are in a similar lane. Similar drum parts, yeah. Right, and I'd rather hear Samson than Iko Iko. And we've already had Samson already on this album, so yeah, I don't really understand the necessity of including this. Yeah, I mean, Iko Iko was a bigger deal in the late 70s, early 80s, where it was sort of a rarity, and I think people really enjoyed hearing it. I mean, it contributes to the crazy 
tenor of this entire disc, right? Because here's a here's a fourth cover <laughs> that is also kind of like a well-worn standard in a lot of ways. I don't know if you're going to hear it at too many weddings, but maybe in the 80s, as we talked about, it was another, it was an improbable 80s hit yeah. thanks to Rain Man. So, uh, yeah, this is like a little bit before Rain Man, the, the yeah. Echo Echo Renaissance, but the people that <laughs> were ahead of the curve Exactly. On that one. So, yeah, it just continues with the whiplash. I mean, it's... It's bizarre that they picked this particular show, and I can't really figure out why, but it's also bizarre that they picked this part of that particular show, because uh, pre-drums in this show, you had about 40 minutes of estimated into Terrapin, into playing in the band, which you think would be the obvious pick. Oh, uh, yeah. To, to drop on here as like, that's three like fan favorite songs and generally reliable jams, and I listened to them, and they were, you know, solid versions throughout, but... Uh, yeah, they were really, I guess they decided to keep in the spirit of this very strange ending to the 1985 yep. show and include a very strange segment of this 1980 show, too. They're just like, dude, we have a chance to make the weirdest disc in <laughs> history. We're going to go for it. Yeah. Let's, let's, pass, let's push the gas pedal, baby. Let's, let's go all the way. From there, we go into Morning Dew, which is a pretty great version of Morning Dew. Yeah. Morning Dew, always reliable. Yeah, the Morning Dew is spectacular. I don't know who did the recording on this 1980 show. I don't think it was a Dan Healy recording because it just sounds like totally different. We talked about this up at the top where you definitely notice that you've gone from 1985 to 1980 when you hear these sounds, these final songs on the volume. Uh, but yeah, it is like This Morning Dew is really great. And it's another case. Maybe this is the link, the only link. Putting Brent Organ on the Morning Dew just takes the sort of churchy vibe of this song to another level uh and some of the like late 60s versions had like pigpen organ on them but obviously brent is a much better organ player than pigpen was and so having this very rich full sound after a you know the thin sound of the 1985 show really makes this do stand out I mean, they could have put the uh, Morning Dew from November 2nd, 1985 on the end of this too, which is a very good version uh, and would have made a little more sense thematically, but I don't know. I enjoyed having this version here. I just wish we knew more about why they picked it. According to the credits, Dan Healy is the only recordist listed, so presumably he did the 80 show too yeah i saw that but i'm i question whether that's true of the filler but maybe i'm wrong i don't know maybe uh, maybe just the sound of that show in general was better 
than they mm-hmm. had in 85. From there, we go to Sugar Magnolia, which has become a pretty standard closer for <laughs> us in of season three of our show. I haven't done the stats here, but I, I would guess that like three quarters of Dick's Picks end with either a Chuck Berry cover or Sugar Magnolia. Right. <laughs> it just seems like they, they end with those so, so often. And we were talking earlier about songs that haven't appeared on Dick's Picks yet. Probably the weirdest one is that there hasn't been a one more Saturday night. That's in 21 volumes of Dick's Picks. That's crazy to me because, yeah, I, you totally think of that as just a classic, like, show ender. I'm not huge on that song, but, like, I would kill for a one more Saturday night at this point. <laughs> it's a change of pace. Absolutely. Uh, nothing else, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We could definitely go for that. You know, because Sugar Magnolia, again, like, this is another example of, like, you have a better song out there. I think Sugar Magnolia, anyone argues, better song than One More Saturday Night. But, you know, just from the repetition of these albums, we're getting to the point now like where variety is really starting to make a difference. I mean, you know, right. we're, we're, we're deep into Dick's Picks land at this point. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting, like, the songs that get excluded. And I'm very curious about, like, why that happens. You know, we, we were mentioning 80s uh, war horses that haven't shown up yet. I mean, Touch of Grey hasn't shown up yet. And, of course, that was a right. song that they were already playing uh, in the mid-'80s. I think they started playing that, what, like in 82? Yeah, pretty early, a long, long time before they recorded it. And uh, I would I would, lo- I would, have loved to have heard Touch of Grey in this show. I think that would have been preferable to, like, many of the songs that were actually in the set list. But, uh, yeah, that I guess they didn't anticipate that there'd be two people that would be listening to these albums in sequence. And uh, that that they should be set up for those people enjoyment. But, you know, you were wrong. Those people did happen and were complaining about it. But, yeah, I don't know. It's Sugar Magnolia. It's a great song. Yeah. And, again, like, this this whole set, I really feel like this is, you know, it's kind of, it's something we run into a lot where we're treating these as live albums in 2021. But they're also historical documents. And I feel like this one really works well as a historical document and a really unique show and a representative of a time that the series hadn't covered yet. Right. As a live album, it's a really weird choice <laughs> just because of the, the flow and the pacing and things like that. And there's nothing, you know, from the discs themselves that would tell you all this backstory about how crazy these shows were and the, the vibe in the room and how the band maybe was feeding off of that vibe in terms of playing a more mellow set to try and chill everybody out. Uh, so it's one where you really need to do a little digging to figure out like maybe why they chose this show. So in isolation, it's a weird pick. In Dead History, it's kind of a fun, interesting pick. But I think in general, it's got to be kind of like lower tier on on Dick's Picks value. Yeah. Right? This is not one I'm going to turn to very often now that we're done with it. Well, it's... in it's Yeah, it's, it's funny because on one hand, if you were just looking purely at the musical quality of the record, it's definitely lower tier. But on the other hand, I feel like I'm going to remember this more than like a lot of albums that were probably better than this. Just because yeah. it's a 1985 show with some 80 stuff added at the end. And... You know, it's just such a weird album that it makes it memorable for reasons that go beyond just musical quality. (laughs) So, you know, so I I don't know if that's a backhanded compliment or not, but this was a weird experience. But I'm I'm glad that we made it together. And uh, it it gets even weirder because from here we're going to go to Dick's Picks 22. And this is like this is like one of the big 
whiplashes that we're going to go through probably in this entire run of albums because we're going to 1968. Absolutely. Yeah. Pure Primal Dead. Yeah. Uh, just kick-ass dead, really. I mean, you know, heavy as shit, just whole different vibe. You know, I'm excited to get into it. They're playing a bowling alley in Florida. <laughs> in Lake Tahoe. Lake Tahoe, baby. No, it's in California. So, oh, is it yeah, California? It, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. in Lake Tahoe. Oh, right, okay. And it's, uh, I mean, it, it's a show that, like, basically didn't exist until they put it out in the Dick's Pick series, too. So that, that adds an extra element of it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be, I'm going to need to, like, recalibrate all over again. Uh, now that I'm into, like, silky 80s dead. Um, my my ears are gonna revolt at hearing. Oh, it's gonna be uh, amazing. Garage Rock '68 dead. So it's, go- it's gonna uh, be I'm amazing, excited. baby. I'm excited to revert back, but I mean, I want to cling to a little bit more of like my appreciation of '80s dead. No man, come back to it. At this show, the horses definitely were tripping, man. If there were horses <laughs> in the vicinity, they were tripping. Their horse... The horse guy uh, renting out shoes. Oh, yeah, he's tripping. <laughs> the, uh, the the pin monkeys I don't know if they had those oh, at yeah. those times yeah tripping <laughs> tripping balls left and right at this show it's gonna be a lot yeah, of fun yeah. well, actually it's two shows February twenty third and twenty fourth nineteen sixty eight at Kings Beach Bowl in Kings Beach California man I cannot wait to get into it uh, but yeah you know I'm gonna miss the weirdness of eighty five you know it was fun to visit eighty five I don't know I don't know when we'll be back in eighty five but I'll never forget you. <laughs> I'm glad it exists. Yeah. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode. We'll be back with more 36 in the vault. Dick's Picks 22. See you in a couple weeks. <laughs> 36 from the vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden, and Rob Mitchum and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB. Hello, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together, we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind, uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little... A little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick, and usually we're joined by Tom. 
Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love want to love or hate yeah imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh has impacted your life uh and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week so triangulate your speakers think about jumping off the bed singing along dancing like an idiot and listen to axe grind podcast <laughs>